We all woke up in the middle of the night. We walked out into the town. We looked up at the clock tower in the town square, the black clock. It didn't ring, but we all heard it. Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. This month, more Anne Radcliffe. The castles, uh, my, I don't have my glasses on. Anthony and Dundane, uh, our reader this month will clarify the name. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this episode is brought to you by... Uh, Uncle Owen's Goat Farm, uh, finest chef in the region. Uh, you can pick that up at A1 Grocery. And also, hey, Oblivions, our patio is open during the pandemic. And as we all know, Oblivions has the biggest patio uh, for Oktoberfest, St. Patty's Days. And if you want to rent it for your next get-together in the upcoming months when we're able to have get-togethers, they are... Yeah, no, you can you can rent the uh, beer garden and it, it'll all be great. Anyway, thank you so much. Black Clock Audio Tales, 1130 AM, KZOM, the place to be and be seen. That is such a stupid slogan. Why do we... You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Lauren Randall. The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter 8. He had now opened the partition and was entering the room when by the faint gleam which the fire threw across the apartment he perceived indistinctly the figure of a man and in the same instant heard the sound of approaching armor. Surprise and horror thrilled through every nerve. He remained fixed to the spot, and for some moments hesitated whether to retire. A fearful silence ensued. The person whom he thought he had seen disappeared in the darkness of the room. The noise of armor was heard no more, and he began to think that the figure he had seen and the sound he had heard were the phantoms of a sick imagination, which the agitation of his spirits, the solemnity of the hour, and the wide desolation of the place had conjured up. The low sounds of an unknown voice now started upon his ear. It seemed to be almost close beside him. He sprung onward, and his hand grasped the steely coldness of armor, while the arm it enclosed struggled to get free. "'Speak! What wretch art thou?' cried Osbert, when a sudden blaze of light from the fire discovered to him a soldier of the baron." His agitation for some time prevented his observing that there was more of alarm than of design expressed in the countenance of the man. But the apprehension of the earl was quickly lost in astonishment. When he beheld the guard at his feet, it was Edmund who had entered the prison under pretense of carrying fuel to the fire, but secretly for the purpose of conferring with Osbert. When the earl understood he came from Allen, his bosom glowed with gratitude towards that generous youth whose steady and active zeal had never relaxed since the hour in which he first engaged in his cause. The transport of his heart may be easily imagined when he learned the schemes that were planning for his deliverance. The circumstance which had nearly defeated the warm hopes of his friends was by him disregarded, since the knowledge of the secret door opened to him, with the assistance of a guide through the intricacies of the castle, a certain means of escape. Edmund was well acquainted with all these. 
The Earl told him of the discovery of the false panel, bade him return to Allen with a joyful intelligence, and on his next night of watch prepared to aid him in escape. Edmund knew well the apartments which Osbert described, and the great staircase which led into a part of the castle that had long been totally forsaken, and from whence it was easy to pass unobserved into the vaults which communicated with the subterraneous passages in the rock. Alan heard the report of James with a warm and generous joy, which impelled him to hasten immediately to the castle of Othlan and dispel the sorrows that inhabited there. But the consideration that his sudden absence from the camp might create suspicion and invite discovery checked the impulse, and he yielded with reluctance to the necessity which condemned the Countess and Mary to the horrors of a lengthened suspense. The Countess, meanwhile, whose designs strengthened by the steady determination of Mary, were unshaken by the message of the Earl, which she considered as only the effect of a momentary impulse watched the gradual departure of those days which led to that which enveloped the fate of her children with agony and fainting hope. She received no news from the camp, no words of comfort from Alan, and she saw the confidence which had nourished her existence slowly sinking in despair. Mary sought to administer that comfort to the afflictions of her mother, which her own equally demanded. She strove, by the fortitude with which she endeavored to resign herself, to soften the asperity of the sufferings which threatened the countess, and she contemplated the approaching storm with the determined coolness of a mind aspiring to virtue as the chief good. But she sedulously sought to exclude Allan from her mind. His disinterested and noble conduct excited emotions dangerous to her fortitude, and which rendered yet more poignant the tortures of the approaching sacrifice. Anxious to inform the baroness of his approaching deliverance, to assure her of his best services, to bid adieu to Laura, and to seize the last opportunity he might ever possess of disclosing to her his admiration and his love. The Earl revisited the apartments of the Baroness. She felt a lively pleasure on the prospect of his escape, and Laura, in the joy which animated her on hearing this intelligence, forgot the sorrows of her own situation, forgot that of which her heart soon reminded her, that Osbert was leaving the place of her confinement, and that she should probably see him no more. This thought cast a sudden shade over her features, and from the enlivening expression of joy they resumed their wonted melancholy. Osbert marked the momentary change, and his heart spoke to him the occasion. My cup of joy is dashed with bitterness, said he, for amid the happiness of approaching deliverance, I quit not my prison without some pangs of keen regret, pangs which it were probably useless to make known, yet which my feeling would not suffer me at this moment to conceal. Within these walls from whence I fly, with eagerness, I leave a heart fraught with the most tender passion, a heart which, while it beats with life, must never unite the image of Laura with the fondness of love. Could I hope that she were not insensible to my attachment, I should depart in peace, and would defy the obstacles which bid me despair. Were I even certain that she would repel my love with cold indifference, I would yet, if she accept my services, effect her rescue, or give my life the forfeiture. Laura was silent. She wished to speak her gratitude, yet feared to tell her love. But the soft timidity of her eye and the tender glow of her cheek revealed the secret that trembled on her lips. The baroness observed her confusion, and thanking the earl for the noble service he offered, declined accepting it. 
She besought him to involve no further the peace of his family and of himself by attempting an enterprise so crowded with dangers and which might probably cost him his life. The arguments of the baroness fell forceless when opposed to the feelings of the earl. So warmly he urged his suit and dwelt so forcibly on his approaching departure that the baroness ceased to oppose and the silence of Laura yielded acquiescence. After a tender farewell, with many earnest wishes for his safety, the earl quitted the apartment, elated with hope. But the baron had been informed of his projected escape, and had studied the means of counteracting it. The sentinel had communicated his discovery to some of his comrades, who, without virtue or courage sufficient to quit the service of the baron, were desirous of obtaining his favor, and failed not to seize on an opportunity so flattering as the present. To accomplish their purpose, they communicated to their chief the intelligence they had received. Malcolm, careful to conceal his knowledge of the scheme, from a design to entrap those of the clan who were to meet the earl, had suffered Edmund to return to his station at the prison, where he had placed the informers as secret guards, and had taken such other precautions as were necessary to intercept their flight, should they elude the vigilance of the soldiers, and likewise to secure those of his people who should be drawn toward the castle in expectation of their chief. Having done this, he prided himself in security, and in the certainty of exulting over his enemies, thus entangled in their own stratagem. After many weary moments of impatience to Alan and of expectation to the Earl, the night at length arrived on which hung the event of all their hopes. It was agreed that Alan, with a chosen few, should await the arrival of the Earl in the cavern where terminated the subterraneous avenue. Alan parted from James with extreme agitation and returned to his tent to compose his mind. It was now the dead of night. Profound sleep reigned through the castle of Dunbane when Edmund gently unbolted the prison door and hailed the earl. He sprung forward and instantly unclosed the panel, which they fastened after them to prevent discovery, and passing with fearful steps the cold and silent apartments, descended the great staircase into the hall, whose wide and dark desolation was rendered visible only by the dim light of the taper which Edmund carried in his hand, and whose vaulted ceiling re-echoed their steps. After various windings they descended into the vaults. In passing their dreary length, they often paused in fearful silence, listening to the hollow blasts which burst suddenly through the passages, and which seemed to bear in the sound the footsteps of pursuit. At length they reached the extremity of the vaults, where Edmund searched for a trap-door which lay almost concealed in the dirt and darkness. After some time they found, and with difficulty raised it, for it was long since it had been opened, and it was besides heavy with ironwork. They entered, and letting the door fall after them, descended a narrow flight of steps, which conducted them to a winding passage closed by a door that opened into the main avenue whence Alan had before made his escape. Having gained this, they stepped on with confidence, for they were now not far from the cavern where Alan and his companions were awaiting their arrival. The heart of Alan now swelled with joy, for he perceived a gleam of distant light break upon the walls of the avenue, and at the same time thought he heard the faint sound of approaching footsteps. Impatient to throw himself at the feet of the earl, he entered the avenue. The light grew stronger upon the walls, but a point of rock, whose projection caused a winding in the passage, concealed from his view the persons his eyes so eagerly sought. 
The sound of steps was now fast approaching, and Alan, gaining the rock, suddenly turned upon three soldiers of the baron. They instantly seized him, their prisoner. Astonishment for a while overcame every other sensation, but as they led him along, the horrid reverse of the moment struck upon his heart with all its consequences, and he had no doubt that the earl had been seized and carried back to his prison. As he marched along, absorbed in this reflection, a light appeared at some distance from a door that opened upon the avenue, and discovered the figures of two men, who on perceiving the party, they retreated with precipitation, and closed the door after them. Alan knew the earl in the person of one of them. Two of the soldiers quitting Alan pursued the fugitives, and quickly disappeared through a door. Alan, finding himself alone with a guard, seized the moment of opportunity and made a desperate effort to regain his sword. He succeeded, and in the suddenness of the attack obtained also the weapon of his adversary, who, unarmed, fell at his feet and called for mercy. Alan gave him his life. The soldier, grateful for the gift and fearful of the baron's vengeance, desired to fly with him and enlist in his service. They quitted the subterraneous way together. On entering the cavern, Alan found it vacated by his friends, who on hearing the clash of armor and the loud and menacing voices of the soldiers understood his fate, and apprehensive of numbers had fled to avoid a similar disaster. Alan returned to his tent, shocked with disappointment and lost in despair. Every effort which he had made for the deliverance of the Earl had proved unsuccessful, and this scheme on which was suspended his last hope had been defeated at the very moment when he exulted in its completion. He threw himself on the ground and lost in bitter thought, observed not the curtain of his tent undraw, till recalled by a sudden noise he looked up and beheld the earl. Terror fixed him to the spot, and for a moment he involuntarily acknowledged the traditionary visions of the nation. The well-known voice of Osbert, however, awakened him to truth, and the ardor with which he embraced his knees immediately convinced him that he clasped reality. The soldiers, in the eagerness of pursuit, had mistaken the door by which Osbert had retired, and had entered one below it, which, after engaging them in a fruitless search through various intricate passages, had conducted them to a remote part of the castle, from whence, after much perplexity and loss of time, they were at length extricated. The earl, who had retreated on sight of the soldiers, had fled in the meantime to regain the trapdoor, but the united strength of himself and of Edmund was in vain exerted to open it. Compelled to encounter the approaching evil, the earl took the sword of his companion, resolving to meet the approach of his adversaries and to effect his deliverance or yield his life and his misfortunes to the attempt. With this design, he advanced deliberately along the passage and arriving at the door, stopped to discover the motions of his pursuers. All was profoundly silent. After remaining some time in this situation, he opened the door and examining the avenue with a firm yet anxious eye as far as the light of his taper through its beams, discovered no human being. He proceeded with cautious firmness towards the cavern. Every instant, expecting the soldiers to start suddenly upon him from some dark recess. With astonishment, he reached the cave without interruption, and unable to account for his unexpected deliverance, hastened with Edmund to join his faithful people. The soldiers who watched the prison, being ignorant of any other way by which the earl could escape than the door which they guarded, had suffered Edmund to enter the apartment without fear. It was some time before they discovered their error. 
Surprised at the length of his stay, they opened the door of the prison, which to their utter astonishment they found empty. The grates were examined. They remained as usual. Every corner was explored, but the false panel remained unknown, and having finished their examination without discovering any visible means by which the earl had quitted the prison, they were seized with terror, concluding it to be the work of a supernatural power, and immediately alarmed the castle. The baron, roused by the tumult, was informed of the fact, and dubious of the integrity of his guards, ascended to the apartment, which, having himself examined without discovering any means of escape, he no longer hesitated to pronounce the sentinels accessory to the earl's enlargement. The unfeigned terror which they exhibited was mistaken for artifice, and their supposed treachery was admitted and punished in the same moment. They were thrown into the dungeon of the castle. Soldiers were immediately dispatched in pursuit, but the time which had elapsed ere the guards had entered the prison had given the earl an opportunity of escape. When the certainty of this was communicated to the baron, every passion whose single force is misery united in his breast to torture him, and his brain, exasperated almost to madness, gave him only direful images of revenge." The Baroness and Lara, awakened by the tumult, had been filled with apprehension for the Earl, till they were informed of the cause of the general confusion, and hope and dubious joy were ere long confirmed into certainty, for they were told of the fruitless search of the pursuers. It was now the last day of the term in which the Countess had stipulated to return her answer. She had yet heard nothing from Alan, for Alan had been busied in schemes of the event of which he could send no account for their success had been yet undetermined. Every hope of the earl's deliverance was now expired, and in the anguish of her heart the countess prepared to give that answer which would send the devoted Mary to the arms of the murderer. Mary, who assumed a fortitude not her own, strove to abate the rigor of her mother's sufferings, but vainly strove. They were of a nature which defied consolation. She wrote the fatal agreement, but delayed to the last moment delivering it into the hands of the messenger. It was necessary, however, that the baron should receive it on the following morn, lest the impatience of revenge should urge him to seize on the life of the earl as the forfeiture of delay. She sent, therefore, for the messenger, who was a veteran of the clan, and with extreme agitation delivered to him her answer. Grief interrupted her voice. She was unable to speak to him, and he was awaiting her orders when the door of the apartment was thrown open, and the earl, followed by Alan, threw himself at her feet. A faint scream was uttered by the countess, and she sunk in her chair. Mary, not daring to trust herself with the delightful vision, endeavored to restrain the tide of joy which hurried to her heart, and threatened to overwhelm her. The castle of Othlan resounded with tumultuous joy on this happy event. The courts were filled with those of the clan who had been disabled from attending the field, and whom the report of the earl's return, which had circulated with astonishing rapidity, had brought thither. The hall re-echoed with voices, and the people could hardly be restrained from rushing into the presence of their chief to congratulate him on his escape. When the first transports of the meeting were subsided, the earl presented Alan to his family as his friend and deliverer whose steady attachment he could never forget, and whose zealous service he could never repay. The cheek of Mary glowed with pleasure and gratitude at this tribute to the worth of Alan, and the smiling approbation of her eyes rewarded him for his noble deeds. 
The countess received him as the deliverer of both her children, and related to Osbert the adventure in the wood. The earl embraced Alan, who received the united acknowledgments of the family with unaffected modesty. Osbert hesitated not to pronounce the baron the author of the plot. His heart swelled to avenge the repeated injuries of his family, and he secretly resolved to challenge the enemy to single combat. To renew the siege, he considered as a vain project, and this challenge, though a very inadequate mode of revenge, was the only honorable one that remained for him. He forbore to mention his design to the countess, well knowing that her tenderness would oppose the measure and throw difficulties in his way, which would embarrass without preventing his purpose. He mentioned the misfortunes of the baroness and the loveliness of her daughter, and excited the esteem and the commiseration of his hearers. The clamors of the people to behold their lord now arose to the apartment of the countess, and he descended into the hall accompanied by Alan to gratify their zeal. An universal shout of joy resounded through the walls on his appearance. A noble pleasure glowed on the countenance of the earl at sight of his faithful people. And in the delight of that moment, his heart bore testimony to the superior advantages of an equitable government. The earl, impatient to testify his gratitude, introduced Alan to the clan as his friend and deliverer, and immediately presented his father with a lot of land where he might end his days in peace and plenty. Old Alan thanked the earl for his offered kindness, but declined accepting it, alleging that he was attached to his old cottage, and that he had already sufficient for the comforts of his age. On the following morning, a messenger was privately dispatched to the baron, with a challenge of the earl. The challenge was couched in terms of haughty indignation, and expressed that nothing but the failure of all other means could have urged him to the condescension of meeting the assassin of his father, on terms of equal combat. Happiness was once more restored to Athlan. The countess, in the unexpected preservation of her children, seemed to be alive only to joy. The earl was now four times secure in the bosom of his family, and though his impatience to avenge the injuries of those most dear to him, and to snatch from the hand of oppression the fair sufferers at Dunbane, would not allow him to be tranquil. Yet he assumed a gaiety unknown to his heart, and the days were spent in festivals and joy. End of chapter 8 Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of Black Clock Audio Tales. I've been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Check out next week's episode, you know, two a week, hey! Uh, and for those who are listening, uh, if you don't listen to some episodes, you can listen to others. Quick update, I'm no longer the mayor. Town elected a new mayor. Uh, I am Pickman. A uh, reclusive chap hangs out in the mayor's residence, doesn't really have me do a lot of stuff, is just trying to uh, get people to uh, care about Oleander, greenify it, keep it clean, um, get the cemetery back up to snuff, get people wanting to live and die in Oleander. So, hey, you know, business as usual. All right. We'll see you next time. And remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about what's going on, and we'll tell you what's going on with our friends. All right, thank you again, and we'll talk to you later. All right.